Well, good morning and happy Thanksgiving week to you. I'm grateful among many things right now that I get to preach from probably the, the most edifying and encouraging passage in all of 1 Corinthians. And I know that's a, a big statement of a letter that we've taken years to move through now. Uh, it's worth the wait. So if you turn there with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Last month, I was on a walk uh, throughout our, our neighborhood with my kids, and my seven-year-old daughter uh, named Piper, she just kind of makes the comment, you know, Dad, in about 25 years, we'll be able to upload our minds to a computer. And I say, oh, is, is that so? You know, uh, she likes to read these kind of random fact resources, and she repeats what she finds there. Uh, sometimes she shrugs when I press her for the details of, tell me a little bit more about where you got that from. And I attempt to explain to her why I don't really think that's possible uh, while trying not to trip over my dog leash. It's held by my six-year-old and his grip is the only thing protecting the nearby cat that uh, Bailey wants to get after. And my, my three-year-old manages to keep up while all this is, is going on. Uh, but among the many troubles that we're facing this year, I guess you could add the horrifying prospect that we live forever on the internet. I mean, isn't that what we want more of in our lives? That's such, just such a wonderful place to be. But that at least is the premise of a new show that was created this year by Greg Daniels. Might have a couple of fans of uh, The Office and Parks and Rec uh, in here, but he created this one as well for Amazon Primes called Upload. And it's part science fiction, uh, part romance, comedy, drama. Uh, but the year is 2033. So we made it out of 20, 2020 all the way into the future. And this digital afterlife is available for the people who can afford it. And there's a computer programmer whose name is Nathan, and he ends up getting uploaded after this, uh, this self-driving car accident leaves him fatally injured. And so in a moment of decision, you know, do they try to kind of get his body back in order or just go ahead, you're about to die, let's transfer you to the computer system. And he does that, and he finds that his entire, you know, afterlife and freedom is now funded by the girlfriend he wasn't quite sure he wanted to propose to do and spend the rest of his life with, uh, let alone all of eternity. Uh, but now he is stuck with her. She's the one uh, paying for him to live on the server and every now and then, you know, threatens to uh, delete him for storm space. Um, but Nathan develops a, a friendship with the customer service representative and her name is, is Nora. So she's, she's alive in body back on earth and they're, they're talking over time. And in one scene of the film, Nora's having a conversation with her own dad because he has a terminal illness. His days are numbered. And she brings up the thought, you know, I could get you a good deal with the company. You know, we've, we've got like the nice, it's actually, it's, it's a little ironic. Uh, their, their company's called Lakeview. Uh, and that is the, the, the nature of, you know, it's, it's like the high end digital experience that you could have one day. And she says, I, I could get you the employee discount. Uh, but he just keeps dismissing the idea because he's planning to see his wife again one day who's passed on, right? The poor guy still believes in analog heaven. But the thing is, th this isn't just the stuff of fiction. There, there's an entire movement today called transhumanism. 
It's seeking to use technology to transcend all the limits of our human body. The things that affect us. Maybe one day even to defeat death. And some of the enthusiasts, enthusiasts might tell my daughter that her 25-year timeline is too conservative. That this is coming our way sooner than we expect. You know, it might be announced at Apple's next product launch or something. But is this our best hope for life after death? Right, some kind of silicon soul. You know, the thing is, it's, it's not just the culture around us that shows some confusion about this, right? Sometimes the church isn't always clear on what awaits us. You know, how do we imagine our future existence? So we have hymns like, I'll Fly Away, which I'm a, I'm a fan of that song, but it also kind of gives the impression that our, our future is more floaty than earthy. You just kind of, I don't know, just I'm a, I'm a ghost escaping this world and what happens after that, who knows? Or we'll say things like, this world is not my home. And, and that's got a needed eternal perspective because we can be so temporally minded and just caring about right now. And so it's, it's good to remember, hey, what we have right now isn't what lasts. But it, it can also kind of convey that, you know, one day we'll escape this body and this planet forever and just be done with them. Maybe your vision of heaven has been formed more by Looney Tunes than the Bible. And uh, you're not quite sure that uh, playing harp while you uh, ride on a cloud sounds very exciting or the way you want to spend the next 50 billion years. Right. Is that what we have to look forward to? Well, Paul grounds us in this chapter. He teaches us about the resurrection of the body and about how it changes everything. So let's read this together, starting in verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? Let's talk with Christopher Spencer last night. He mentioned, I'm just so glad somebody was going to ask that because then we get everything else right here. With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. Here's a biology lesson. There's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. That's losing you a bit. Just stay with me. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised 
in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a, life, uh, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, the man of the dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Well, Paul begins by anticipating that objection. You know, how are the dead raised? Tell me how. How does this work? Could you, could you give us a few more details, Paul, on how exactly this is possible? And notice something here. Naturalistic skepticism is not new. Right, it's, it's not just modern secular people who find this hard to believe. Sometimes we, we think that ancient people were just gullible. They were just willing to accept anything. They had some weird, bizarre explanation for just normal stuff. You know, Zeus was the one throwing the lightning bolts. And if somebody had a seizure, it's only because they had demons. And I don't know, fairies were messing with their cupboard or whatever. You know, and, and so if you come telling them this man has been raised from the dead, sure, fine. I, I, I'm good with accepting that because I'll believe just about anything. But almost no one in the first century was ready to believe in the concept of a resurrection. 
This is important to see. In fact, in Acts 17, when Paul proclaims the resurrection, it says that the people of Athens sneered at him in disbelief. They, they think that what he's saying is ridiculous. In fact, it's worse than that. For the Greeks, the notion of any kind of resurrection was a little gross. It's like, you know, fingernails on the chalkboard when they hear Paul say this. Everybody kind of did this little kind of movement when you imagine that in your head, right? That's the feeling that they would have when you start talking about resurrection because they, they wanted to be free from the body. They thought that the physical world was nasty and immoral. And so the soul sheds its body in death and is done with it forever. And that's behind some of the ideas that Paul is shadow boxing throughout this letter and, and the problems that are arising in, in Corinth and, and why he tells them in chapter 6 that the body hasn't been made for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Your, your body belongs to the Lord. Because they had the idea, you know, some of them, that it doesn't really matter what sin you commit in your body because you don't have to show up with it one day before God. That'll be gone and this pristine soul will be there. And, you know, I don't know, maybe God missed, you know, on the sexual immorality that you committed uh, during this life. And so the resurrection was a doctrine that they had trouble swallowing without gagging a little bit. Now, the Jews, they believed in a resurrection of the dead at the end of history as part of the renewal of all things. And so the resurrection to them was this end time moment when God would raise all of his saints, all of his people to glory when he makes all things new, when he renovates the creation. And so there was nothing in, in their background thinking that would lead them to believe that, that it would make sense for one person to be raised right in the middle of the show. Before the curtain has closed, right? Right in the middle of history, that one person would show up with a glorified body. And so if you came to a first century Jew and just shared the information, hey, that guy Yeshua has been raised from the dead. He'd say, really? Uh, you know, last time I checked, uh, people were still getting sick and dying. And I visited the Jerusalem uh, Zoo earlier and they weren't putting lions and lambs in the same cage because they don't lie down together very well. And the Romans are still here and they're still unjust and there's no peace in the land. Don't tell me that the resurrection has taken place. It would have taken compelling evidence in experience with the risen Jesus himself. Not only to get them to believe us, but even to introduce the idea in their minds. Sometimes people think they were just hallucinating experiences. If they would have hallucinated experiences of Jesus, it would have been seeing Jesus, you know, maybe at the right hand of the Father, awaiting his resurrection. Not that he came out of the grave with his body intact. So notice, Paul argues with the Corinthians throughout this passage. The Bible speaks a convincing word to the first century skeptic, to the, to the 2020s that we live in. It's aimed at our hearts and our minds, and Paul gives us logic on fire here. And apparently they, they, they could stomach the resurrection of Jesus, but not the resurrection of the rest of us. Like, that's fine for Jesus to experience that. I don't know that I want that for me. But Paul says like, that's like trying to be half pregnant. 
Right? That doesn't really work like that. You, you, you can't take that atom and split it without disastrous consequences. And so they ask, well, all right, fine. I'll bite what kind of body, Paul, do they come back in? You know, they're going to be a bunch of zombies hanging out around here. Is this going to be night of the living dead? And, and what is even left of your body? You know, some people might still have their bones in a tomb. What about the people that were eaten by animals? What about those that were lost at sea? What about those that were just buried in a mass grave? What about the people who have been cremated and there's nothing left of them on this earth that's discernible? What's going to happen to them? It's interesting that any objection that you and I can think of, that they're way ahead of us. And Paul interacts with them. But even if we could get past that, they want to know, is this the body I'll have forever? The, the one that's been stained with, sh with sin? The one that's susceptible to suffering? The one that sometimes I've been ashamed of? I'll take it with me into glory? How are the dead raised? That's their question. I hope it's ours. It's worthwhile asking and giving our attention to. And there are three words in this passage that answer that how question and tell us why the resurrection changes everything. They are imperishable, immortal, and immovable. These are words worth meditating on together. So let's do that. First, imperishable. Paul talks about a body restored. He says the Corinthians are wrong to think that the body that is raised is susceptible to the same kinds of things that this one is. And so their cynicism, it's cute, but it's foolish. And he's not just, you know, insulting their intellect there. It's a, it's a moral word that he uses. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool doesn't think to include God in his explanation of life, in his hope for the future. And he says, there's just one little thing that you've left out when you go to tell me about what's possible. God, right? He says in, in, in verse 38, God gives us our bodies. You're ignoring the creative power of God. And just look at this creation. Just stare out into the night sky. Look, look at the flaming balls of fire that God is sustaining in existence. And you think your body is going to give him trouble? You think he can't do anything to repair that? He says, is, is this so hard to believe? Have you ever planted anything? Got any gardeners in here? Right, you, you make a hole in the ground. You lay a seed to rest. It, it dies. It decomposes. It transforms. That death gives way to a new birth. And then all of a sudden, when you least expect it, life that is strikingly different from that seed, and yet somehow the same plant comes bursting out of the ground. And it happens all the time. It's a resurrection cycle God has embedded in creation. The bodies of an acorn and of an oak tree are in one sense the same, and yet they are radically different. 
And so Paul says, our present and our future are as distant as perishable is for imperishable. And these are some rich words. The Bible is so true when it comes to explaining our experience. Think, think about them with me. He says that we are sown in corruption. Right? That, that's the condition that touches a fallen creation. Everything corrupts. Every system is corrupted. We corrupt. Everything grows stale and rotten. Everything disassembles into entropy. When, when you go to grasp it, it's gone. Good things just seem to move away from us. What we love breaks in our hands. We are broken. It's what it means to be perishable. Have you felt vulnerable lately? Prone to anxiety? Frail? Overwhelmed? You are. Your spiritual great-grandfather handed it down to you in his DNA. And that characterizes you and I ever since. Right? Our bodies have an expiration date. And the clock ticks. I saw a video this week of the prosperity gospel preacher Kenneth Copeland having his congregation all touch their heads with their hands and command the bald spots to be gone and their hair to grow back. Uh, you know, I don't know. It seems to have worked for Mr. Copeland because unless he's wearing a toupee, he still has a, a full head of uh, brown hair uh, in his 70s or whatever age he, he is. Uh, but uh, eventually those go away, right? Even the prophet Elisha couldn't help but be called a bald head by little children in Israel and telling him to go run up you bald head, right? So... No matter what faith and power and prophecy you have, uh, baldness affects it all, frailty affects all of us, and everything we are one day falls apart into dust. A cursed ground claiming us again as dirt. But what is planted corruptible comes out of the earth incorruptible, right? In the resurrection, we will never again be subject to injury or disease. You'll never get sick. The coronavirus will have no claim on us. A cancer cell will never again show up in a human body. It won't hurt anymore. I revel with me in this. Nothing will be lost. You'll never again feel like life is leaving you behind. Like it's running through your fingers. Always on the escape. Like what you love has retreated from you. It will just be indestructible joy forever. That's what it means to be imperishable. He says we are sown in dishonor. The word means to be subject to shame or to shameful treatment. Ever since Genesis 3, our bodies have been a source of shame. Our bodies are good. God created them good. 
But this is one of the impacts. This is one of the the aftershocks of a fallen world. And now we hide. We don't want our nakedness seen. We we cover up. Right? We we try to self-protect. We we feel exposed. We we feel like somebody else could hurt us. Or worse, somebody could see how we have hurt others. Our past races behind us and we feel like it's always on display. Just look at me, I'm a fake. We sense the label of what we have done and the things that have been done to us and we feel it in our bodies. The trauma specialist Bessel van der Kolk describes this as the body keeps the score. Your body knows, right? And those of you who have have suffered from PTSD, you, you know this, right? You've, you've, you've gone through a bad accident. You've had a traumatic experience. You've been abused. Your body registers that awareness. It feels like it's always being carried around with you. And, and, and certain settings and sounds, they, they trigger your senses. They, they heighten your heart rate. Your body resonates with the ache of the world around you, telling you that it's a dangerous place. And sometimes it tells you, you should be ashamed. And that's all you can hear. Jesus carried our shame. He suffered our abuse. He he took his glory. He was the heavenly man. And he shrouded it in layer after layer of normality of a veil of unimpressive sights, of accusation, of mistreatment, of hurt. And that's how he was seen until the morning the light cut through the tomb. And Paul says, you will be glorious. We will, for the first time ever, be exactly what we were created to be. We will be comfortable in our own skin. We will be content to be image bearers. We will just be the display of the joy of God in what he has made. C.S. Lewis makes this point that the dullest, most uninteresting person that you could talk to today, the person that you're kind of, you know, I've had enough of that conversation. I really want to go hear that person over here's stories and the jokes that they tell, right? That person that you, you kind of itch to get away from, if you could just see what they might be one day, they might look like a creature that you would be strongly tempted to worship right now. That's what it means. To be glorified. He says we are sown in weakness. We're subject to infirmities. To deformities. To disabilities. It's like we we lack skill to accomplish anything lasting. We're described in the Bible as wasting away. It's striking, it's, it's humbling when the weakness becomes visible. My wife, Rebecca, her grandfather, he held the title of being the strongest man in his state. When he died, 
He was very weak. He was weak in body. He was weak in mind. My own grandfather, my, my dad's dad, my papa, to me was just this image of power. He had a sharp wit. He just, he, he was built strong. He had this impressive personality. Uh, tended to make the people around him nervous. <laughs> Uh, wasn't unusual for us to go out to dinner and and by the end of the night like the the rep representative for the restaurant was coming and comping a free bottle of wine for us I don't know why they just he just freaked the people out around him after my grandmother died it's like the weakness of death reached back for him and started to claim him Alzheimer's disease set in he shrank physically all the capacities that were so impressive to him were stolen faster than you could think. For some, all it took was one bad fall to take your parents away from you. And all that they had done. Right? All, all that they had accomplished. All the, all the moments of power that they had shown in their life. And one little stumbling. Really? That's going to that's gonna seal the end? It just seems almost stupid, doesn't it? That's when the weakness has its way. This year, bodies have been intubated, have been dependent on ventilators in order to breathe. Some people have died alone in a hospital, away from the people who love them, who who knew all the good that they had done in this life, who knew their personality, who knew their accomplishments, and none of that is with them in the room in this moment. It's just a display of weakness. For Christ's people, it won't always be this way. All right, we will be raised in power. We will be the product of omnipotence. Right? How will this transform us? How will this impact the ones that we love? A son who was formed with an additional chromosome. An adopted daughter who was addicted to drugs in the womb and her brain's still jumbled by the effects of that. What will they look like? How will they act when the weakness is lifted forever, when the unopposed power of the creator is in full force, how will we be? When our own weaknesses of will, when our incompetencies, when all of the moments where we've said, I just can't, I just can't handle, we've given into laziness, we've just allowed the limits of our creatureliness to reign the day, what will we be like when that gives way to power? All right, that's what the resurrection means. But how can this be? All right, why is it, Paul? that the perishable is going to put on imperishable. And he says it's because our captain has already led the way. He's already done it. This has happened. It's not inconceivable. It's happened exactly. And there is now a new way to be human. And he says that the, the new body will be spiritual. And again, he doesn't mean, you know, see-through, 
ghost-like. Jesus' resurrection body was physical. He could eat. He could enjoy breakfast on the beach with his disciples. They could touch him and feel him and interact with him and hear his voice, see him with actual physical eyes. But what he means by spiritual is the Holy Spirit that Jesus bore. The Holy Spirit who is the worker of the supernatural and the miracles will characterize everything about our existence. Then it will flood the creation. And Jesus is the guarantee of all that is. He's what humanity looks like now. Verse 45 Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Right? And, and, and the Bible presents this. That there are these, these two different blueprints for humanity. And everybody's either of one or the other, eventually. Right? There, there are these two templates, these two filters for what it means to be human. And the entire storyline of the Bible, it's a tale of two Adams. And all of Jesus' life, all of his ministry, it's a reenacting of our story. He redoes, he puts right everything that we broke. The heavenly person, he touched down to our dust. He experienced our perishable existence. He took on a body of death. And he succeeded in every moment that the first Adam failed. In entering our humanity, he identified with our story. In in Jesus' baptism, he claimed our need for cleansing. All the thing that's, all that stains us, he says, I'll take that. I'll confess your sins as mine. I I love, by the way, if you read some of the early accounts of Jesus' nativity and birth around Christmas. In Mark chapter 1, it says that the, the people of God were coming down to the river to be baptized by John, confessing their sins. Skip down a few verses, and then it says, Jesus came down to the river to be baptized by John. End of sentence. No sins to confess, except for ours that he bore. Fourth century church father Gregory of Nazianus says that when he came to the Jordan, Jesus came to bury the old Adam. He drowned him in the river, and his hair was still dripping wet when he went into the wilderness. And all of Israel's 40-year trial in the desert, Jesus does in 40 days of fasting. He was among the wild beasts. He was hungry And he knew then, like Israel should have known, that man, to what it means to be man, means you do not live by bread alone. His ministry rehumanized the people he touched. Lepers were not only healed, they were restored to their families. They re-entered society. Sinners found a place to belong. They were welcomed to the table The demonized were liberated. He experienced temptation in a garden. He went under trial. Pontius Pilate did not know the words that he spoke when he said, Behold the man. 
He was the man. He, he was our man. And he bore our guilt. He suffered our abuse. He took our sin. He hung naked, cursed on a tree of the old creation, and then he was driven in the ground. But then in the garden, the seed that was sown came alive. You know, it's interesting that Mary, who's the first person to see Jesus there when she comes to the tomb, mistakes him for the gardener there. He was a gardener, right? He was the tiller of the soil that Adam was supposed to be. He was the one who would make it fruitful again to multiply. And the whole world began to be made new. The old man is dead. Long live the spiritual man bringing in a day where miracle reigns. The old regime of sin and death is gone. And that's what Paul celebrates here in our second word, immortal. He dunks on death in this chapter. It's like he dances on death's grave. But, you know, we want to follow his example. But we can't do it right away what Paul does here. Because if you, if you jump to that too quickly, uh, it, it's a mistake. And sometimes believers make this mistake. And we come to death with a, a self-confidence that isn't warranted. Thinking that it's no big deal. And we get caught off guard by it. And we need an honest look at the ugly. Let's take another pass at our enemy together, right? Death is the most predictable thing in this world. And yet it never feels expected when it arrives for you. You, you can't. Really prepare for death. You might watch a loved one suffer slowly. Or you might have to just deal with the shock of them being suddenly taken from you. But you're never ready. It never feels like the right moment. It's intrusive. It's a thief. Being a believer doesn't make it something easy to process. And we need to know that as a, as a church community, as we walk with grieving people. If, if we tend to say things that sound like, oh, but shouldn't you by now have gotten over that? You're saying the wrong thing, by the way. <laughs> the Hamilton obsessed among us will appreciate this. In the musical, Aaron Burr sings, death doesn't discriminate between the sinners and the saints. It takes and it takes, and it takes. And you never really know how it's going to impact you. you know, I've, I've been to funerals where there's just that kind of polite, quiet going on, the hushed silence. And I've been to funerals where there is loud wailing. And in some ways, that's the more appropriate response. Once asked a man who works at a mausoleum, what's the strangest thing that he's ever seen in all his days there? He says there was one funeral that they had done where they buried an older woman and she left behind her husband and they show up for work the next day 
and during the night that man had come and he had opened back up the vault and he had pulled out her body and he laid with her. He just wanted one more night with her. It was one night too soon. And then she was gone. Death is so untimely, so final, so wrong. Stephen Um writes this, death is always traumatic. Death is obscene. It is counter to everything that is living. Death is ugly, painful, sad, brutal, and terrible. It is an aberration. It is terrifying. Death is absolutely not natural. It is monstrous. And Jesus has beaten the monster. And he's done it for all of his people. It affects all who belong to him. He says, we will all be changed. No matter if we have been long forgotten by the time Jesus returns, or we are still standing and breathing and relatively healthy when he shows up, we will change. We will be clothed in immortality. The resurrection of Jesus can't help but change everything. And the entire universe will catch up to what he has begun. And that's why you can't separate our resurrection from his. It's one event. It's just, there, there was a preview in the middle of the show and the show is coming to an end. And, and his resurrection, think of it like this. It's like the, the head of an arrow that was launched into the future and the tail is getting pulled forward and we will arrive right on time with our new bodies. Nothing can separate you from his heart. Nothing will be able to keep you in the ground. You know, one theologian has said that when Jesus came to Lazarus' tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth, it's a good thing he said his name because otherwise all of the graves would have opened up in that moment. Nothing will stop this. And Paul says, in an instant... In the smallest fraction of time. You don't want to blink or you might miss it. We will look like him. When I was a kid, I used to try to jump into the mirror and see if I could beat the reflection before it shows up. <laughs> I had way too much energy on my hands. Still do a little bit, you know. Uh, it never worked. Right? And... Our glory and our perfection will immediately mirror the image of the risen sun and everything will change. The muscle memory of the creation will respond to its creator's presence. It will be put right and it will be put better than it ever was. Not just back to the Garden of Eden, but everything that, that should have been if that garden had grown and taken over the planet. And we'll get to sing this on Friday when we're finally allowed to listen to Christmas music and joy to the world. He's come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And this physical world will be made right. It'll be made new. And all of its pleasures... You're not just going to be floating around, not just going to be unconcerned about like nachos and chips and salsa. Those will still be glorious in that day. You will have a body that can pump with adrenaline. You will have lungs that can fill with laughter. You will have an appetite that can taste good things. And none of it will be a trap 
None of it will be addicting. We'll never again be tempted to form idols out of it and, and close in our side of ourselves and become deformed by creation. It'll be a launching pad for worship and glory moment after moment. Who knows what it'll look like when, when Mount Everest is just a little too short because of the presence of sin in the world. And the night star, the, st- the sky, and all of its glories will be on full display to the joy of their creator. And this earth, made new, will be our home. We will be home for the first time. And then will come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Where's your sting? And that's like the Pauline equivalent of Queen's We Are the Champions that Paul sings here. Right? He pulls it out on him. He he talks to death kind of like a a, a kid who's smack-talking the former bully because his older brother's standing right next to him now. And now he speaks with confidence. Right? Our, 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 Our older brother beat the bully. And death is silenced. Death is like some cartoon villain who prepared his victory speech right before he's being taken out. Keep talking, buddy. The hero's got you in his crosshairs. No matter what you say about your dastardly plans, they're not going to come into full effect. And for the believer, death can attack, but it can't land a finally fatal blow. William Seward was the Secretary of State serving with Abraham Lincoln and when John Wilkes Booth developed the plot to assassinate Lincoln, they, they decided they wanted to take out the rest of his cabinet as well. And so his associate, Lewis Powell, was part of that plan. And he shows up one night at Seward's home. But just a few weeks earlier, he had been in this, this terrible carriage accident. And he had broken his jaw. And so he had this, this metal plate that was hanging right here by his neck. And Seward was approached by Powell. Powell came with a knife in his hand and four times he came down to try to cut his jugular and each time it just kept hitting that stinking metal plate instead. All all the trauma that Jesus experienced, it doesn't allow death to puncture. Why not? The sting of death is sin. And sin's Power comes from the ability of the law to condemn. Right? It's the voice of accusation that makes death unbearable. That makes us question, are we ready? Can we, can we face it? There's no moment of self-honesty like that. Right? There's, there's nothing worse than dying in your guilt. Adnaram Judson was a missionary to Burma, and he grew up in a Christian home. But when he went, he attended Brown University. He got around another friend, another student named Jacob Ames, and Ames was a deist. And uh, you know, deists—they don't believe in any miracles. They don't believe in any resurrection. Most of them don't believe that Jesus actually was the Son of God. They might believe, hey, you know, there's a Creator, but He's not really caring about us much these days. And Jacob Ames had his influence on Judson. And, and by the time he graduated, he had lost his faith. No longer 
identified as a Christian, the skepticism had its way. And he moved to New York to work as a writer for the theater. But eventually he came, he wanted to uh, visit his uncle, and he stopped in a nearby town and stayed at a hotel room there. And the innkeeper apologized when he set up his room. He said, the guy staying next door, your sleep might be interrupted throughout the night because he's terminally ill and he's not doing well. And all night long, Judson could hear coming from the next room the loud gasps and groans, the people coming in and out to attend to him. And he, he, he couldn't shake the question. Was, was this man prepared to die? He thought, I'm a deist. I'm not supposed to ask those questions. That's not supposed to matter. And the morning came, and he went to the innkeeper and asked him, is, is the man doing any better? And he said, well, actually, he died last night. He said, could I, could I know his name? And the innkeeper replied, Jacob Ames. It was his student from college. Right? That night, he heard the guilty die, and it shocked him into life. It led him to take risks and die in this life in a thousand ways to bring the gospel to those who needed it. But it's only the gospel that brings comfort in the clarity of death. And, and it's the gospel that we need. We need a specific kind of good news for for these kinds of moments that we face and, and not some other way, not some Hallmark card, right? Not some other promise for how to avoid regret. How do we escape the sting of death? I always enjoy watching film adaptations of A Christmas Carol, you know, around this, this time of year and uh, spoiler alert, but it ends, you know, uh, toward the end with uh, the, the ghost of Christmas future who, you know, looks like the grim reaper. He's pointing this uh, deathly finger towards Scrooge's tombstone. And he has to come to grips with a life of selfishness that ended with nobody caring, nobody grieving him. People just kind of selling off his clothes and celebrating the fact that the old miser is now gone. And as he falls into his grave, he wakes up and he's wrestling his bedsheets and the curtains and he realizes, I've got another chance. It hasn't ended yet. I can turn this around. I can be kind. I can be generous. I can be a good person. End of story. It's a good story. I enjoy it. But, but listen, we need something that's much more comforting than the fact that, hey, you might be able to turn your life around. It's not too late. You don't all have to, you have to live with every regret. You can be a good person in this world. Right? No matter our best efforts, that won't silence a guilty conscience in death. But you know what? Christmas itself brings much better news than what's told in a Christmas carol, right? That's in verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. We don't win the victory. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He lived the life that was generous and kind. He lived what we could never pull together, and he has taken death's sting. He knew the voice of accusation in the way that 
If we are in Christ, we will never hear, we will never face in our soul what was in his as he hung on that tree. We will never hear the words that passed between him and his father as he bore the weight of our guilt, as he drained death's venom, as he took the curse and left it in his tomb. And now death is swallowed. It's gone. There's coming a day when it will never be heard from again. It's just life unending. You can count every death. You can count every moment that has been marked by perishability and mortality throughout the entire history on this earth. Set it next to the 10 billion years and more to come of everlasting life. And the novelist Frederick Buechner says, take all the death that ever was set next to life, it would scarcely fill a cup. At one point, it will just be a passing memory. What should this do to us now? Our imperishable and immortal future makes us immovable today. Right, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Right, in chapter 13, Paul tells us that if you don't have love, no matter what you do, it's worthless. We're clanging the symbols over there. It's not going to have any lasting good effect. It's not productive. You, you need love. But then in chapter 15, he says, unless you have the resurrection, everything you do is also pointless. Our faith is in vain. So that same word he uses in verse 14 for saying, unless Jesus has been raised, our faith is in vain. It shows up again in verse 58 and saying, because you're going to be raised, nothing is in vain that you accomplish for your Lord. Nothing gets wasted. No frustration, no suffering, no struggle in the, the direction toward godliness, toward righteousness, toward his kingdom. No investment that we make that here and now it seems like it just doesn't return, right? Another check spent. Literally or metaphorically. It's just what we live life. We spend, we spend, we invest, we invest. And so little comes back. We sow and we sow and we sow. And it looks like nothing is, is breaking the surface of the dirt. When does the garden grow? When does the harvest come? He says, it's coming. Keep abounding. It won't be pointless. Everything will be collected in his hands and taken with you on the last day and will be there for you to enjoy forever. It will all be redeemed. As Ronald told us last week, you, you can't cling to your life, but you can let it go and let it be raised. Andy Wilson makes that point in his book, Death by Living, that your, your heartbeats can't be hoarded. Stop saving them for yourself. Let your, let your hands blister. 
Let your back groan a little bit. I mean, all of our backs are groaning a little bit, right? <laughs> give yourself, give your thoughts, give your creativity, give your time to serve. It will all be given back. It will all be raised in life. Don't give up. The pains of labor are leading to a birth abound. Be immovable. It's a word that means that we're steadfast, that we, we are caught by surprise by many things. We've been caught by surprise by too many things this year and there are more to come. But we're not caught off guard. We're not knocked down. And how we need this. How sadly, easily shaken the church looks to the world as it watches us. It watches us cling and fight and look desperate and pretend like we're trying to build kingdoms here and now. I love this vision for God's people in Psalm 112. And Ronald, you can come back up, man. For the righteous will never be moved. Why, why can we be immovable? He will be remembered forever. And so, he's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. Does that describe you? A heart that's firm, not afraid of bad news? Or are we touchy people? Are we emotionally fragile? Are we living anxious and fighting? Are we easily offended? Are we trying as much as we can to gather in our forces and self-protect and preserve our safety? Why would we do that? We do that if we think we need to guard ourselves from the vulnerability of this world, if we think that God might somehow forget us. Your Savior will not forget you in the day he returns. He will command your body to grow. And you have life. As believers, we face everything that is rotten and ruinous. And even with tears in our eyes, we say, you won't win. Sorrow doesn't get the last word. That's not how the story ends. We know the end ahead of time. Samwise Gamgee says in Lord of the Rings, and he knows one day everything sad will become untrue. And that is true. Appreciate Andrew Peterson's music. So many of his songs sing this theme well, but here's one of them for you. It says, every stone that makes you stumble and cuts you when you fall, every serpent here that strikes your heel to curse you when you crawl, the king of love one day will crush them all. And every sad seduction and every clever lie 
Every word that woos and wounds the pilgrim children of the sky, the king of love will break them by and by, and you will rise up in the end. You will rise up in the end. I know the night is cruel, but the day is coming soon when you will rise up in the end. These are dark days. The rising sun, it's glowing, it's burning over the horizon, and we will be lifted to meet him. Maybe hold on to him. He's holding on to us. He will pull us out of every grave that we face. So let's rise up and let's sing to him. There's a peace I've come to know Though my heart and flesh may fail There's an anchor for my soul I can say it is well Jesus has overcome and the grave is overwhelmed. Victory is won. He is risen from the dead. And I will rise when He calls my name. No more sorrow, no more pain. I will rise on eagles' wings Before my God Fall on my knees and rise I will rise There's a day that's drawing when this darkness breaks to light And the shadows disappear And my faith shall be my eye Jesus has overcome And the grave is overwhelmed Victory is won He is risen from the dead And I will rise when He calls my name No more sorrows, no more pain I will rise on eagles' wings before my God, fall on my knees and rise. I will rise. Jesus has overcome, and the grave is over. 
victory is won. He is risen from the dead, and I will rise when He calls my name. No more sorrow, no more pain. I will rise on eagle's wings before my God. Fall on my knees and rise. We will rise. We will rise. We will rise. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the truth of the resurrection and how it empowers us to live life, O oh Lord, hoping. Hoping in truth, O oh Lord. Hoping in your everlasting life affecting us now, O oh Lord. Hoping in the reality of that everlasting, everlasting life, Lord. And what it will be like, what it will feel like. Lord, take ownership of our hearts, we pray. We thank you, Father, for what we've been expounded on today, O oh Lord, the truths that shape our hearts, O oh Lord. Would you impress them ever deeper, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you guys for coming. We'll see you hopefully next week. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Those of y'all joining on live stream, hope to connect with you guys soon. Have a great day.